So I, I feel like I have to say that, but we're, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, looking at the new covenant. But before we do that, I want to back up a little bit uh, and kind of look at where, what's brought us to this point. First, we looked at the Adamic covenant or the, 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 the covenant of works. Um, that humanity failed in that covenant. Adam and Eve ate from the, the tree, and uh, so that one didn't work. In fact, mankind descended into uh, such horrible behavior that the Bible says that God repented that he had ever created man. He wished he had never made mankind, and so the, the violence of man ran rapid, and so God said, I'm going to remove them. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And after the flood, the Bible says that Noah established a covenant between Noah and his children. And that covenant is still in place. In that covenant, we saw that since it was based on God and not on what we do, that God would never destroy the earth again by flood, we still got that. In fact, I saw just last Wednesday night uh, uh, some pictures from last Wednesday night where there was in the Hoax Bluff area, beautiful double rainbow. Um, God reminds us whenever there's a rainbow in the sky that he's not going to destroy the earth again with flood. The Noetic Covenant was followed by the Abrahamic Covenant between God and Abraham where God said, from your children something is coming. The Abrahamic Covenant was based entirely on faith and that Abraham found Grace in the eyes of the Lord and his faith was counted as righteousness. And then for the last few weeks we've been looking at the covenant with Moses where God established his covenant with his people. And last week we looked at what the purposes of that covenant were and what the purposes of those covenant, that covenant is today. Now the strange thing about that covenant, when it was given, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30... This, and when all these things come upon you, Moses is speaking to the people, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice and all that I command you with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Which you may notice is from Exodus chapter 21, where God gives that great commandment. So here we read in Deuteronomy 30 an assumption that they're not going to do what they said they were going to do. Isn't that strange? That God gave a covenant and God said, I set before you a blessing and a curse. A curse if you disobey God and a blessing if you obey God. If you obey God, you will live long in the land and everything your hand touches will prosper. And if you disobey God, I set before you a curse and I will scatter you among the nations. And then here, Moses just assumes that they're going to completely do what he warns them not to do. Isn't that strange? 
that God would say. Now, I, I will say, I can kind of relate to this because as a parent, my, my, my kids, we were talking the other day. Uh, we were sitting around the dinner table and uh, they reminded me that I used to always do this and they were telling me how much they hated it when I did this. But I would, if we had a, a day, a, a trip, what I always would say is, we're going to have a, uh, we called it a uh, fun zone. Today is a fun zone. There will be no complaining. There will be no fighting amongst yourselves. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have a good time. And so we would, let's say we were going to uh, the McWayne Center. We would get to the McWayne Center, and I would get them all together on the sidewalk outside of it. And I would quote this verse. I would say, I set before you a blessing and a curse. If you do what I've told you to do, we're going to have a great time. We're going to get some dipping dots. We're going to be able to touch the, the octopus through the water. You're going to have a great time. But if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to wear you out every time you disobey me, and you're going to have a horrible day. It's your choice whether you have a good day or not. I'm begging you, please, just don't go in that place and embarrass me. Don't go in there and make me have to ruin your day. So they were telling me, I hated it when you did that. And I'm like, yeah, but it worked. So, and oftentimes with some of my children, I would be saying it and I knew. I knew that the child was going to disobey. I knew that I was like, please, please let's have a good time today. I'm begging you. But I knew in my heart that she's going to get worn out several times. Many times at night, I, Lizzie could not sleep until she'd gotten two spankings. That was just the way the child was. I, and on a nightly basis at 7.30, I would call her into the living room and I'd say, Child, go take your clothes off, get in the shower, take a shower, use soap, put on some clean clothes, go set out your clothes for tomorrow for school, Go in the kitchen, make your lunch, clean up your mess, and then by 8.30, be in the bed. Please, please just do that. And there you won't have, there won't be yelling, there won't be any spanking. Just do those things. And I knew when I said it, it wasn't going to work. <laughs> that she would come out of the shower and I would say, did you take a shower? And then go and pull the curtain back. There's no water in the floor of this shower. You just wet your head. Get in the shower. Or they would be laying in their beds looking all ready to read the book, Dad. And I would go in the kitchen and no lunches had been made. Why did you make your lunch? I forgot. But I, And here Moses is doing the same thing. He finishes giving them the law. He finishes saying, I set before you a blessing and a curse. And then here he essentially says, and I know you're going to mess this up. So when you get scattered to the nations, I, God's going to bring you back. He even says, if you get scattered into space, I will bring you back. And then he's, he makes reference to the new covenant. That at some point, God is going to write. So he's going to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God. So the, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that internal force. God making a new creation. And so 
in Jeremiah 31, this great prophecy about the new covenant where Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so here we see that the new covenant is not fully complete until that day. But today, he's beginning that process. The difference, one of the differences between the new covenant and the old covenant is internal. Instead of externally saying, this is what you do if you don't do it, there will be trouble. The difference is, is that that law is written on the heart. Now, the new covenant is declared by Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the text that I always read uh, whenever we do the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is the enactment of that new covenant. It is a beautiful picture of that covenant. Whenever um, I talk with a child about baptism, I always try to emphasize that baptism does not save you. That at no point, you, the water doesn't become magic, that you, you don't get saved. You, the water of the baptismal pool does not wash your sins away. It's a picture. And so with kids, I'll usually say, have you ever seen a play? And they'll say, yeah. So... Does the person actually turn into the whoever, you know, if you're an elf in the play, do you actually turn into an elf? You're, you're, you're acting out an elf so we can see what an elf does. And so the baptism is the same way. You're acting out something that happened inside. So that you're declaring to everybody who's in this audience what already happened internally. And so the Lord's Supper is the same thing. It's a way that we as a church, on a regular basis, act out the processes that are involved with the new covenant to remind us that the new covenant deals with sin in a different way than the old covenant. The old covenant had circumcision, and that was a way that the people knew and could be reminded that we're different from the people all around us. The new covenant is acted out through the Lord's Supper and through baptism. And so that's why we're going to start this study of the New Covenant by looking at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So bear with me, I'm just going to read, read the text. You have it here with you. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you do not come together. When you come together, it is not for better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order to the, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You know, we don't think about that, but that Paul is here saying there's going to be divisions in the church, and that's a good thing. I never think of, of problems in the church as a good thing. But it, it exposes 
where a person's heart is. If you are fighting for your way and the way that we do things in the church, that exposes the wickedness in your heart. So what had been going on here is, is not unlike what we do, actually exactly like what we do on Wednesday, our first Wednesdays, is it what was going on here. They would meet together and have a for real meal where they all brought food and they would all eat. Now the difference was, is there was a vast difference in the socioeconomic situation of people in the church. Not unlike we, we would have here, where you have people who are rich and you have people who are poor. In this case, you would have people who were slave owners and people who were slaves. You would have doctors and then you would have people that, that were mechanics. And you would have welders and you would, you would have uh, folks that, that were general laborers. And you had across the board people that made different kinds of money. Now, that's okay. That's normal life and that's the way it should be in the church. In fact, one of my favorite things about church life is that there are people that I can love and get to know and, and, and truly appreciate that in just normal day-to-day -day life, I would never get to know them. I would never have anything to do with them. But just because our lives wouldn't normally intersect. And the only thing really that we have in common is Jesus. And that's enough. And so there are people who I don't have anything in common with that grew up differently than me, that are educated way more than me or educated less than me, who are age difference way more than me, that I get to know because of Jesus, and that's enough. What was happening in this church is they were allowing those differences to separate them in the church, and that's easy to do. I've been in a part of a lot of churches that allowed those things to creep in. So if taking our example of the Wednesday night meal, it would be just like we do, except if I brought the deviled eggs, I would come sit the deviled eggs at and say, these are for me and my buddies. So all you people that are too stupid to bring your own deviled eggs, y'all need to sit over there. <laughs> so I'd have deviled eggs and chicken, and there would be some people sitting over there eating bologna. And Paul is saying, that ain't right. If you want to go fill up your gullet, do it at your own house. If you want to go, and there were actually people in the church that were showing up for their first Wednesday and they were getting tore up drunk. They were getting tore up off the frame and there are people over there who aren't eating. Paul said, if you want to get drunk, get drunk. But don't do it in the church, go do it at home. Now, he's purposefully using hyperbole. I ain't telling you to go get tore up at home. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is symbolic of his body that was broken for us. Because the sin has to be dealt with. So you got two things at play. And on the back page, if you look on your notes, there are two problems that separate from God that are solved in the New Covenant. One is the problem of guilt. We all have an issue with guilt. We all deal with our own shame. Where we sit back and go, I can't be used by God because I've done this, 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 and this thing. Our guilt our shame, the punishment that we deserve had to be dealt with. The second thing is, is rebellion, and that comes down to we keep on the sin. So if God could, as of right now, say, okay, we're, we're, 
throughout Christendom, there have always been heresies. And one of them that crept in in the 3rd century was, is that when you got baptized, your sins got washed away. And so we read of people like Constantine who, as he's dying, he waited to get baptized until he was dying because he didn't want to sin anymore. He wanted to make sure to catch them all, all the sins. Well, that's a really stupid way to look at it. But I understand the point that was making because here's my frustration with me. I keep doing stupid stuff. I keep sinning. I know better. I know what the Bible teaches me, so, but I keep doing it because, my, because of my flesh. I, uh, Anne's van has, has died, or is, is dying, and so we are, we're looking for another car, and um, it, it is a very frustrating process um, because she's trying to decide what kind of car she wants, and she can't really decide that and and so I have probably three times over the course of the last week and a half two weeks as we've discussed cars um, had to go back to her and say yeah I'm sorry I was being a jerk you know what it, you're the one driving it pick whatever car you want I, uh, I'm so sorry and then I, I find myself in another situation want to do it again go oh for the love do we not have to talk about this anymore Just get a car. So the problem is, is that my heart is so wicked, I'm still fighting for my way. And so the two issues are being dealt with with the new covenant. The issue of guilt is dealt with with Jesus' body. And that the guilt and the shame and the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve is poured out on him at the cross. So that there is no more guilt, there is no more shame. That the Bible says to me that the, the, the enemy, the devil, is the accuser of the brethren, but that our defense attorney is Jesus. So he's the offended person, because whenever we sin, who we're sinning against ultimately is God. And so he's the offended party, and he's the one who's forgiven. And so when the enemy brings a, brings a charge against you, when the devil is standing at the throne and saying, I don't know why you think you can use Tom Harrison, but he is a liar, he's a thief, he's an adulterer at heart, he is wicked and worthless. That the person that defends me is the very person against whom I have sinned. So there is no more shame, there is no more guilt. It was dealt with on the cross by Jesus. So that the Bible can tell us in the old law, you had a priest. And so whenever I sinned, I had to go to the priest. And I had to take a turtle dove, or I had to take a lamb, I had to take a critter. And then the critter died. And we've talked about this before, how the work of the priesthood was constantly busy. And it was, that priesthood would by lots roll from family to family. So you would have your, that duty for a week. And that week, that priest was constantly moving. All day, all the, the whole time, he's moving. He's getting him some showbread to snack on while he's killing some lambs. And he's cut, booking so in Hebrews we read that Jesus is sat at the right hand of the Father. The work is done. It's complete. You don't have any more sin, guilt. You don't have any more shame to deal, deal with. It's been dealt with. 
So when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that with the bread, it's representative of the body, it, that's dealing with our guilt and our shame and our punishment. Then he goes on and says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup is representative of the new covenant, which we read back here in Jeremiah. The idea of the new covenant that flowed all through Jewish thought was that God would change the heart. See, what God does in our life is he changes our want to. We still sin, but we have a desire to be pure and to do the things that we want to, which over time changes our behavior. And God is sovereignly, if you're in Christ, God is sovereignly working in your life and He is faithful to continue working in your life to transform you into the image of Christ. And I believe that just as God is sovereign over our justification, that the Bible says, for you are saved by grace through faith, that God had to give you grace before you could get saved. Isn't that crazy? The Bible says that the things of God are foolishness to the lost. So God had to give you grace before you had the faith that could be counted as righteousness for you. So you didn't earn nothing. It's all a gift from God. In the same way, just as surely as God is sovereign over your justification, God is sovereign over your sanctification. Which means God's not going to let you run in your sin and be happy. He is going to come get you. The book of Hebrews talks about being chastised, which is a fancy way to say getting a whooping. Everybody in here who's a believer has had those times in your life when you thought, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And God didn't let you. Didn't let you continue in that. Have you ever been taken to the woodshed by the Lord? Not a pleasant experience. I've been there. And God will use circumstances in your life. So much so that Romans 8.28, the verse that we like to, to you know, put on a kitten poster, just hang in there, all things are going to work together. We want to act like that means that it's all going to work out the way we want it to work out. That we're going to all end up with a new truck and a pony. What that verse is saying is, because the very next verse says, for whom God foreknew, he predestined to be transformed in the image of Christ. What he's saying is, is everything's going to work out to make you more like Jesus. All, everything that comes into your life is going to be used to transform you into the image of Christ. That is being played out with the cup. So with the bread, we see the issue of Past sin being dealt with, and with the cup, we see that new covenant being, being presented, which changes our heart, where God writes the law on our heart. It is a beautiful picture of what the new covenant is. Now, I have a little bit of time, and I wanted to take just a moment, uh, because I've had people say, why do, why do we do things the way that we do it in the Baptist tradition with, with the cups and the juice? And so I want to just take, take a moment 
um, and kind of walk you through what the thinking is behind that. Because there's some of the stuff that people maybe don't understand. I don't know if you ever noticed, but one of the things that we do is before, when you get here, there'll be a table there that in your mind, I hope it says, do this in remembrance of me on the front of it. Um, and then on top of that table are some little, little uh, containers that have cups in them and another plate that has the little pieces of, of uh, bread. So, if you notice, uh, we don't do this the way maybe you've seen it done in a Catholic church or an Episcopal church where you come forward and receive those elements from me as an ordinate. We, on purpose in the Baptist church, make sure that those elements are presented by typically by deacons who are lay people, because what the message we're trying to send with that is that there's nothing magical that's happened to that bread and that grape juice. That it's not a, 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 a person who is trying to be a vicar, who's trying to stand between God and man, and that I alone can present the elements. So in the Baptist tradition, in the Puritan tradition, in the, in the Presbyterian tradition, you receive the elements on purpose from a non-ordained person. The reason why we pass it out instead of, of uh, you coming up and getting it is no one serves themselves. In fact, if you'll notice, there's always a really strange moment where, because what happens is, is they always bring the elements back up there, and then I give the elements to the deacons, and then there's that moment where I could just reach in the plate and get it myself, but I want the symbolism to remain. And so always, sometimes it's Bruce, sometimes it's Jeff, I go, take the plate. And so they take the plate, and then, then I get my piece of, little piece of bread and then take it back. Again, that's the reason why no one serves themselves is to show that Christianity was not designed to be a Lone Ranger sort of thing. We all need each other. Doesn't mean that that deacon or the elder or the, the lay person who's handing you the plate has done some kind of hocus pocus. We're not being superstitious about it. But what we are saying is, is that we need each other. The reason why um, we... I always, I don't know if you've ever noticed, we'll do them one at a time. First bread and then the, the, the I keep wanting to say wine, um, juice, whatever. it's wine, it's the fruit of the vine. Um, we do them individually is because that's how the text tells us that Jesus did it. So I always hold the bread up first and then I always pray a prayer of thanksgiving first and then we all eat together. Um, the, it is common in Baptist circles for there to be a common cup or a common loaf. I have many times uh, done the Lord's Supper where we had flat um, bread and passed it around and everybody tore uh, the bread off. The reason why we had the little tasteless crackers is simply for convenience. Um, now I do not, with one exception, I do not do the Lord's Supper in a non-church event because the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. So I've had people go, Can you, will you come to our Bible study and do the Lord's Supper? And I say, no, it's not. It's a church ordinance. We do it as a church. We don't do it as individuals. I don't do the Lord's Supper at weddings. I don't, it's a church ordinance. It's not to be done uh, off at other things. The one exception to that is people who are dying um, 
and they want to receive a last Lord's Supper. Again, it's not a magical thing. We're not Catholic. We're that we think that that's going to help them get into heaven faster. The reason why I'll do that is because that, that oftentimes is a comfort for them. And then when I do that, I won't do it alone. I always get other people to come with me. So essentially, we're having a little bitty church service is the way I'm trying to tr treat it. Um, so I, I just wanted to take a minute because a lot of people don't realize that the way that we as Baptists do the Lord's Supper, there's been a lot of thought and prayer put into it. We don't do and the, the way the Methodists do it or the way the Catholics do it. There's been a lot of thought put into it the way they do it. There's symbolism in each aspect of that. And I just wanted to explain what the thinking was behind why, the way that we do it. Um, not saying that their way is better or worse. I think ours is more biblical, and I think that when we all die and go to heaven, they'll see that our way is more biblical. But until then, uh, I, I have no problem with someone who loves the Lord just as much as I do disagreeing with them. We've talked about one of the things that we fail to do in our culture today is know how to disagree with somebody. So I hope that answered those questions. We are going to pick back up with the New Covenant. We're going to be in the New Covenant a, a, a little while for a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk just about the various aspects of it and how it's different than the, the, the Old Covenant and how in some ways it's the same. And if you notice in the prophecy in uh, Jeremiah, uh, it seems like the New Covenant is for Jews only, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why um, there were specific regulations that were given just to Gentiles. If you ever wondered about it at the Jerusalem Council, when the Gentiles were... To, we're coming into the faith, and the disciples and the people in the church of Jerusalem discussed, okay, what part of the law do they have to obey? We were told not to um, eat, blood, uh, eat food with its life force still in it, to abstain from sexual uh, immorality. Uh, so there, there are some specific rules, and we're going to talk about why, why those are.